today on Wine Access Unfiltered. Many years ago, I have a cousin who's very wealthy, and I had the experience many times of going to his house and him saying, this is a $1,000 bottle of wine, and he's pouring glasses to everybody. And I literally had no context. I didn't know, I don't even remember what regions they were from, what countries they were from. It was just, and I think in that context, there is no difference. Like, you shouldn't, like, Mm-hmm. There's no, you can't consume a $1,000 bottle of wine. That doesn't mean anything. Welcome everyone to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I'm Amanda McCrossin here with the talented, eloquent, and wonderful Vanessa Conlon. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here again. And this guest, I'm just, I, I can hardly wait to start this conversation. I'm so full of questions. <laughs> well, I queued you up because in addition to you being talented, eloquent, and wonderful, he too is talented, eloquent, and wonderful. I'm a very, very big fan of Adam Davidson, who's with us today. He is the co-founder and contributor to one of my favorite podcasts on the planet, aptly titled Planet Money, and also has a book called The Passion Economy with uh, an adjacent podcast also called The Passion Economy. What makes him super interesting is that even though these are highly specialized topics that he's talking about, they're incredibly interesting to listen to. And I am not a finance or economist person. I'm not someone that has Bloomberg going on in the background of of my living room every day. But I still find what he has to say incredibly interesting. And I'm also told he's a bit of a wine nerd. He sounds very methodical in how he's researching wine and and learning about wine, which is fascinating to me because um, a lot of sort of things that he's doing, I think more of a trade person, you know, a wine industry professional, um, their path to learning. So I, I just want to pick his brain and see how he thought of some of these things and, and what his journey has been like. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I think his journey will be very interesting. I also think this podcast has the potential to dive into some very interesting topics related to the distribution of wine, the pricing of wine. I mean, I think that we could get down and dirty today in a way that we haven't before. So I'm excited to have a true economist with us to help to maybe shed a little light on some of the other facets of the industry that we don't normally get to talk about. Exactly. I feel like not only are we going to drink well, but I'm going to leave smarter today. <laughs> oh, yeah. We get to drink today, too. That's the other great part about this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as far as his preferences, he is someone that lists Jances Robinson and Neil Rosenthal as palettes that he identifies with. So that leaves very little to the imagination as far as what we selected for him today. And I think we chose two wines that are going to lend themselves to conversation, but also they are two very different price points, though. They are. I have to say I'm enjoying them already. (laughs) (laughs) No one is surprised. (laughs) I couldn't help it. I'm really excited about today's choices. So, Well, I normally cue us up with Let's Drink, but seeing as how you're doing that already, maybe you should say it. (laughs) Well, we have the wines open. We have an amazing guest. I'm here with Amanda. So let's drink. Adam, I hear you love a little wine. I do. I, I do really love wine. I uh, I grew up with a wine-obsessed father. He was he sold wine at Sherry Lehman, which is like a big retailer in New yeah. York. Yeah, when I was, oh, yeah. Huge retailer. When I was born, and he was very knowledgeable. He's an actor, so he was able, when I was around one, to quit that day job and just be an actor. But, I mean, wine was just a big part of my childhood, which means into my 20s, I kind of didn't want to have anything to do with it. But then by my 30s, I 
I came to really like it and then also came to like when I could disagree with my dad about something and have a different <laughs> viewpoint. As we like to do as children. I think the wine world of 1969, 1970 was a different wine world than the one I kind of got to know in the 90s and early 2000s. So so what kind of wines uh, did your dad have around the house when you were growing up? Um, he is a little price obsessed, like keeping it below a certain price. He needs a Pinot Grigio usually to start and then um, Cabernet Sauvignon. That's sort of the standard. And then I will say, like, while he gets a lot of different wines, it's usually the same varietals. And I don't think he's gotten into any new. I mean, he will. He'll try Pinot Noir and stuff. But he's like, I feel like whatever a knowledgeable wine drinker drank in 1969, that's what he drinks. Um, <laughs> like Merlot, I remember when Merlot was getting hot, he was like, that's a filler wine. That's not a real wine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Did your dad also write sideways? <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> but he's not a big Pinot guy. Um, so, I mean, I'd say he's kind of France and California. Not Not much else in Europe. But he loves a bargain. So South America. You can find some great values. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think um, I don't think I've ever seen like Australian or South African or um, or even like Italian or Spanish, really. Hmm. Like if it's There's so much good value there. Yeah. But I think if it entered the international market after, like I said, after like Nixon resigned, then it's not. <laughs> Your dad sounds great. I want to drink with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it definitely sounds like you came in, came up in a wine drinking household just based on what we had heard your preferences were, or at least, you know, were around a, a wine drinking group of people because you had mentioned, I think it was to Laura, that uh, basically you'll drink anything that Janzis Robinson and Neil Rosenthal will drink, but not what Robert Parker will drink, which I think is the most telling thing you can say about yourself as a wine drinker. So to that end, we selected two wines that I you know, I hope you're going to like. I selfishly, as per usual, selected them based on your preferences and both mine and Vanessa's preferences. So I'm very excited to have what we have today. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think, you know, exactly what you were saying, Amanda, um, but it, it's really, that's kind of like music to my ears when someone can verbalize who else's palate they align with. Because so much of, you know, when I talk to consumers and, you know, there's always debate about scores and our scores helpful or not helpful. And I'm always saying like, you know, forget the number, like read what they say about the wine and see if you agree with with how they describe it. And that's more telling to me than than some number. Absolutely. You know, uh, placed on a bottle. I actually I can remember when looking back, this is how I would describe it. Now, I really did want big one note wines like and I would drink French wines and I would be like, I don't know, I just can't kind of zero in on anything. And and I really did like big California, like you you would have one big taste or whatever, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And sort of the, the first sip yeah. and the 10th sip, yeah. it, it sort of like, OK, I know what that is. And I remember thinking French wines were too, I don't know. I was like, I don't know. There's a lot going on. I can't kind of figure out what it is. And then I guess it really was reading Jancis Robinson and just, I don't know, kind of paying attention where I started thinking. Oh, OK. I kind of see there's like some different things going on and different wines are kind of doing those things differently in different ways. And that's exciting. So can I what should I drink first? Yes. 
both of them at the same time. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, it's difficult here because you know I think the the lighter of the two is naturally going to be the burgundy, except that you know you've got we're drinking Eschazo, which tends to be a little bit more concentrated, um, and this is a, a fuller ish bottle of burgundy but i think still you know burgundy first you know that's what i started with it's honestly like i think you could go either way with these two it's not like one is so t- overly tannic that it's gonna blow the other one out Mm-mm. but i started with the right. burgundy, and i just put a little seven up in it just to make it just great yeah, just, just kidding just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah i put a little white claw in mine look at you you're like a millennial now <laughs> welcome to the club it does smell like um it has a a kick to it like wow yeah, this is, so this is uh, Domaine Jean Griveau, uh, Echisseau Grand Cru, 2017. Wow. I won't even begin to try to decipher this wine because it is so incredibly layered and nuanced and beautiful. Wow, that was what literally what I was about to say. There's like, mm-hmm. this is exactly what I was just saying. Like, I feel like 20 years ago, I would drink this and be like, what? I don't know. It's too much. But, and now it feels like, <laughs> I mean, there's like a, a solid, like earthy base, but then there's like. Um, kind of an astringency and and it's and I already know like in half an hour it's going to be doing something else it's um yeah wow I um I, I think you're I think a lot of people when they start getting into wine they there is the allure of drinking new world wines from California because it it is so approachable and accessible and delicious and yummy and um I, I think we can maybe dive into that stereotype as we progress through this conversation but to your point a lot of people are scared of burgundy, number one, because of how it's labeled. But number two, the taste profile doesn't necessarily align with a lot of the things that Americans we drink in that it's a little higher acid. The fruits aren't quite as forward. Um, you know, it's a little lighter. It's a little more subtle and it's a little less obvious, frankly. Yeah. I was going to say obvious is a great way of putting it, Amanda. And like, I think it's also like, and maybe this is a comment again on like sort of the American consumer, but this wine takes patience. Yeah. Right. Like. You have to stop and like think about it, enjoy it and like feel it and like let it sort of evolve on your palate. It's not one of those like, oh, it's going to smack you right in the face and be super flashy. It's like you have to you have to kind of delve in, but definitely rewards you for that. It is amazing. (laughs) And it's doing stuff on a higher level than I've been drinking Um, because it's it feels like an essay or something like it, it has this acid and like that. It's so hard to balance those two, I think, like have have a conversation that with both of those. And it feels like young to be this like deliciously drinkable. Like, would you hold on to this for a decade or something? Yeah, I would. I mean, yeah, I think you could. I don't think you have to. This is something like Amanda and I have talked a lot about with, on, with various guests on, on these podcasts is like, you know, when's the right time to open a bottle and mm. um. You know, I look at at a a number of things to decide if you could hold it if you want to. And I think, you know, this has sort of all of those things like, you know, balance. It has length. It has intensity. It's like the length is really long. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I'm still, you know, it is. But it's not that syrupy like California. Not all California. There's wonderful California wine. There really are. No, I think we should I think we should talk about it because I think I think there is a sort of 
preconceived notion. And I, I'm guilty of having it myself. And what's interesting is you came up uh, in a household, you started enjoying California wines first, those sort of one note wines, and then maybe gravitated. I was sort of the opposite. And that I came up in New York under a French sommelier. And my only introduction to wine was Burgundy and Bordeaux. And so I had a, I had an opposite approach. But I think for me, there was this notion that what existed outside of those particular regions i.e. California and the New World, was just one note. It was just these sort of one-dimensional, big, opulent wines that were a little bit more homogenized in style. And as I, as I learned and as I, I got to be uh, more of a professional and less of an amateur, and I moved to California, I was quickly humbled by everything that exists in California and how diverse it is mm-hmm. out there. I had the same. I came to it also in New York, and I worked for an importer and you know, my introduction was through the the Loire Valley, which couldn't really be much different than than California in terms of, you know, right. climate and expression. So, um, I mean, obviously, I love Napa. I live here. It's, I appreciate many wines from here. But yes, yeah, s- same introduction to wine as you, Amanda. And I'm only now like, because I, I feel like the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, I was like so anti-California. And so now I'm kind of, and I also felt like, Oh, Napa's just overpriced. Like you're just paying like half the price of a bottle is like because 20 hedge fund guys wanted to compete over who had the most opulent estate. And I don't want to get in that. I don't want to, you know, my price point typically is 25 to 40, I say. And I feel like I like it when I feel like most of that is because there's a grower who's doing something cool and I want to, and a, and a winemaker is doing something cool. And so I just had in my head, like, Screw California. I don't want to have anything to do with it. If it was West Coast, I like Russian River Valley sometimes more. But lately I have learned like, no, no, there actually are really interesting winemakers in Napa Valley. It probably is overpriced, but that puts a discipline on it as well, which is you have to earn the land price by actually, you know, trying to do something special. So so it's um, I am rethinking it, but I'm just a little ignorant. So I just know, like, I know that there's some people who are interesting, but I haven't quite gone there or even a little yet. Yeah. It's interesting that the question has to be raised, is Napa overpriced or is it just commensurate with what's going on in the state of California and specifically Napa Valley, which is just, you know, such a commodity and a place where prices are driven up so quickly because there is so much desire and it's essentially a supply and demand effect. But the same thing is happening in Burgundy. and the prices of Burgundy, as I'm sure you've experienced, and, and I'm sure your father, much to his demise, the prices of Burgundy have just gone through the roof. And I think, again, you know, is that a function of land value? Is it a function of the past few vintages being so awful prior to 17? Um, I just wonder, as an economist, what your what your thoughts are on that. Um, yeah, I mean, wine is a fascinating economic study. Um, it, it just embodies so many things that it allows you to think about so many economic questions um, and uh, it, in like an interesting way. So I would say that the more I learn about wine, to my shock, this was a surprise, the more rationally and reasonably I think wines are priced. Like I, I think once you understand the logic, the more yeah. it actually yeah. makes sense. You know, there's what's the saying Half of what people say about wine is BS, but it's always impossible to know which half. Um, (laughs) But I actually think it is a rational market and it's actually a model market. That's what excites me. Like, like I wish more of the world was like the wine industry, wine market and not. Now, I'm not saying everything is like I think post-prohibition, we have an insane system in the U.S. and the 
ridiculous state by state regulations and the three layer system and all of that strikes me as very bad from the standpoint of like what any market should do is like producers and consumers should have the easiest way to find each other and find the natural price level. And wine is terrible in a lot. I mean, not wine is terrible, but regulations that are just stupid. I mean, it's just about like local beer distributors trying to like make extra money by preventing competition and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's ridiculous that there's, I'm sure, amazing California wine growers or maybe even like Wisconsin winemakers who just can't even think about selling outside of people coming to their vineyard because, I mean, I'm in Connecticut. There's all these wineries. I haven't been to any of them. I don't know. Maybe there's a good one. I doubt it, but maybe. And, um, but they're probably better than Wisconsin. Probably better than Wisconsin, come to think of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyway, but my point is like, if you think about any, so wine has a bunch of characteristics that are just interesting. Um, and you have to divide the market. And so I think the way I think about it, and I think a lot of economists who are into wine, <laughs> they're sort of up to, let's say, $14. That's just one entire industry. You know, there's actually like, there really is like, something like half of wine is like less than $6 a bottle. So that's its own thing. That's like alcohol delivery products. You know, that's that really isn't in this conversation. Then we could argue over the details, but like from six or seven up to say 14 or 15, it really is a mat. It's like McDonald's or whatever. It's like, how do we engineer a product that the largest number of people will want? I'm not saying that's true in every single case, but broadly speak. No, a lot of cases, yeah. you're right. If you're selling something for $14 a bottle or $10 a bottle, you got to sell a lot of it. And you probably need like to invest in some heavy duty capital machinery. Like you have to have a fairly efficient system. It's like selling Snickers bars versus having some gourmet chocolatier or something. Like you just need to move a lot of product. And so you need a lot of people to like it. But once you get above $20, so there's all those surveys that like prices inversely correlated with enjoying. Like, there, this is a constant thing you see. The more a wine costs, the fewer people like it in blind taste tests. But that's getting at the wrong question because it's the more expensive a wine is, the more precise and specific it is. So I have learned that there are certain parts of Burgundy I really like. There are certain wine producers I really like. And finding that wine that really matches me it's like a complicated exchange. Like it, it's a big deal. And so maybe I do pay $30 on average for that wine, not despite the fact that you might not like that wine as much, precisely because there's this really complicated thing. I'm just some guy in Brooklyn. That's a winemaker with whatever they're making, 5,000 cases a year. How the hell do we find each other? How do we like create this transaction so that it's sustainable. It just is more expensive because it's less efficient. But let's celebrate less efficient. Like less efficient is where passion and excitement and deliciousness and like long-term experiences are. So I think like there's obviously a, like I drank some wine that someone said, you know, that's like $1,000 a sip. I don't know that I would even be able to experience that. Like I think it would just get in the way. So I, I feel like there is a price point where I just, for me, who I am, I just can't even think about. But I'd say from like 20 up to 150 to $200, the prices are right. They are where they should be. And as a general rule, and when I pay more, it's not that it's not like um, buying a 
a bond or stock. It's not like if I pay $80, I want that to be four times more pleasurable than a $20 wine. It's just, it's actually, in my experience, there's a higher likelihood I might not like it, but it's because it's more specific, but I'm learning something, I'm experiencing something, I'm probably going to have a thought that is going to impact how I think about future wine. So it should be $80 because this couldn't exist. That winemaker couldn't make 800 cases if he wasn't charging $80. My life would be worse if that guy and a bunch of others weren't trying to make 80 cases or what, 800 cases, whatever the number is. So to my surprise, as I looked into wine, I I think I thought the bullshit factor was, I thought like above $30 or whatever the bullshit factor was half of it. It was just rich people who want to show off to their friends. But I actually think that that exists, but that is quickly eliminated by sommeliers, by retailers, by, you know, by importers like Neil Rosenthal and some other ones. Like, yes, that market exists. There's no question that exists, but it's a much smaller and more irrelevant to my experience market that really when a bottle costs $140, $212, whatever the number is, it's kind of the right number. It is the right number. And it is, I can't afford that every day, but I can afford that a few times a year in a way that makes my life worth way more than how much it costs. So sorry. I'm realizing these are thoughts I have that I never say out loud. So I'm sorry I talk so long. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens when you drink. (laughs) I mean, you, you bring up a good point And I think it's something that Vanessa and I are asked often, which is, is this really expensive bottle of wine something that I'm going to like? And is it worth it? Worth it. And trying that worth it question, trying to quantify that for someone. And to your point earlier, you know, I think I think you're right. I think the more expensive a wine gets, um, you know, as you cross that $150 threshold, the less likely a person is to enjoy it just by way of it being a narrower niche. Like we get into a place where this wine is built for a small sector, smaller sector of, of people who maybe are willing to appreciate it. But also, you know, I'm not I'm not sure if if it exists specifically above the 150 that not everyone can. I just think it, that it's it's less likely to happen. Um, and so as you try to to talk to consumers and talk, talk to guests at restaurants, you know, is the wine worth it? I don't know. Like, I think it's like any commodity. Like, what is what makes anything worth it to you? What makes you buy, you know, a $300 pair of jeans versus a $200 pair of jeans? You know, is it the brand recognition? Is it that you want to Instagram this leader? Is it that, you know, you want to seller it and hold on to it so that it appreciates the value? I think, you know, like any commodity, there's there's different reasons why one would purchase and or consume a particular exactly. good. And, and also it's the context. Like, so for me personally, if I'm going to spend more than $20, it's part of like, I'm, I'm on a specific like path. Like I'm choosing like, okay, I want to know this part of Burgundy or I want to know like, like right now, I really want to know more about what Spanish. I notice I really like Spanish wines. I spent some time in the Penedes region in Spain and I really like those wines, but I just feel like I don't quite, I'm not an expert by any means, but I have a feel for what's going on in Burgundy and how that's very different from Bordeaux. And I have a feel for certain parts of Italy. And I find that really thrilling to like, usually you need like a guide. And so for me, it's this awesome guy whose name just jumped out of my head, but he's at Slope Cellars in Park Slope, Brooklyn, um, who just has been guiding me where I'll go to him and say, all right, let's move from Burgundy to Northern Italy. I'm going to be getting a case every few weeks. Let's keep the average price around 30 bucks or something, but let's 
have some bigger bottles in there. And he'll really specifically help me understand, like, all right, if you want to understand the most classic Barolo, like what, like, that's not going to be a $30 bottle. So I don't know that I would drink it every night, but I, it was worth it because it's like part of a, it just enriches everything. And then when I drink, you know, a, a, a cheaper Italian wine, the knowing how to think about it in the context of Barolo, like it's just a helpful thing. And I like reading about the history of Barolo and the weird kind of revolution that happened a few years ago with like more newer growers and older growers. And like, it's a pleasurable thing. So I'm many years ago, I have a cousin who's very wealthy and I had the experience many times of going to his house and him saying, this is a thousand dollar bottle of wine. And he's pouring glasses to everybody. And I literally had no context. I didn't know I don't even remember what regions they were from, what countries they were from. And I think in that context, there is no difference. Like, Mm -hmm. you can't consume a $1,000 bottle of wine. That doesn't mean anything. But if it's like, holy crap, I've been stunning Barolo forever. I love this, this, and this. I'm not going to really know that region until I get this $1,000 bottle. Like, then maybe that is something like I talk to my wife about and we plan a birthday party around or something. Um, So it's that contextualization, which you have some responsibility for as a consumer. But once you do it, the prices are right, I think, generally. I think it's interesting what you what you said earlier about how more expensive wines don't show as well to consumers in blind tastings. Um, And I I wonder, too, it kind of goes back to when we were talking about the Burgundy, that this is a wine of subtlety and takes patience, you know. Um, So I wonder, you know, how much of that is is just stylistically, I think also classic wines take longer to unveil themselves. You know, like I am a master of wine. I sat the, the, the tasting exam. And when part of my strategy was, you know, if I thought it was a classic wine, let's say it's like a Burgundy or, you know, sometimes I would wait to taste them because I'm like, this is going to take a while to open up and really show me what it is. Uh, and even something like, let's say like, you know, often on the exam, they maybe put two different quality levels of champagne. So you've got like a non-vintage and a vintage. Right, right off the bat, the vintage wine doesn't show as well, you know, because it's it's subtle, it's more linear, it's more focused where the other one is going to like sort of right off the bat, you know, explain itself to you. So. um yeah. So I think that some some of these classics, they just you have to you have to wait for it a little bit. Like you have to wait for yourself to be ready. Like I might now be getting <laughs> ready to drink like two hundred dollar <laughs> bottles of wine. Like I, yeah. I might just be entering the period of my life where I know, where I have a yeah. train my palate to where I can actually it's worth it. It makes sense. Yeah. But I still think I'm nowhere near where I should be like even if I had the money, like buying $10,000 bottles of wine, I just, it wouldn't have any impact. So it's both the bottle. I agree on the wine. Like, I don't know the prisoner that just like slaps you in the face. Like, this is what I am. And you, you get it instantly. And it is a pleasurable experience. Like it's like, right. Whoa. Oh, and it's made to be that and way. And it's made to be that way. But it, um, whereas, yeah, well, I don't know. This is pretty, the Eschazo is pretty, but now I want to drink the other one. It's that, Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I, I have to go s- ahead, Vanessa. No, 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 no. Go ahead a minute. I, I think drinking the Eschazo though next to the Crozier Mitage will be very interesting because they are quite different in price. So as we are talking and I, Vanessa, I don't know if you have the specifics, but I know that there is a there is a big swing here. A bigger. Um, swing. There is. I, I'd have to look it up specifically. Honestly, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I did yep. look it up. But I think that it's like a 20 fold difference. Ah, OK. This Rhone, like, I like it. I mean, it's a pleasurable, but it's definitely, like, a thinner range of things going on, if that. Or maybe I just... Yeah. 
I mean, I think there's amazing value in the Rhone. I, I love the Northern Rhone, but with these two bottles specifically side by side, I agree. It's like, it doesn't have the full range. It doesn't have like the trouble and the bass and everything in between. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. it's a lovely song, but it's not a symphony. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like this, this is very drink. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying it and I want to drink more of it, but, um, but it's, but yeah, it just, I, the way I visualize it is it's like, <laughs> it's all like right in a narrow window of, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's not that complicated balance where I'm like, how the hell do you even do that? How do you? Yeah. I, I'm really impressed. So I have to say, um, Adam, with like the way that you're approaching wine, because it's 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 actually very much the way I think a lot of people in the trade do. Amanda, tell me if you agree. We're like, you know, finding someone like when you're learning, finding someone that you trust and and having that person like guide you through the experience um, and sort of putting yourself in their hands to explore new regions. But also the fact that you actually know the name of an importer. You know, you you mentioned um, Rosenthal, right? Is um yeah. So, I mean, because that's something, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've done this a million times, like you taste a wine, you're like, oh, who's that? Like, Who imports who's, this? Who's the importer, <laughs> right? But like, I never, yeah, I really never see consumers do that. So it's, I'm just curious, like, how did you, how did you learn about that specifically to, to research who the importer is? I'm trying to remember. I mean, we do have a friend who's a wine professional who has been very helpful and kind of guiding me. And then... When I was researching my book, I got, so I wrote this book called The Passion Economy. And the way I learned about you guys is I also have a podcast, The Passion Economy, which very happily Wine Access is a sponsor of. And although I would have been overjoyed to do this podcast, no matter what, that is not <laughs> like, yeah. That. It's an excuse to drink in the middle of the day. It's an excuse to drink. Exactly. <laughs> so the whole idea of the book and of the podcast is this idea of the passion economy is that my argument, others agree with the general idea is that if you think of before the Civil War, say, almost all commerce for all of human history was very local, like, you know, your cobbler and your baker and your cheesemaker, and you knew them your whole life, your grandparents knew their grandparents, like the world was very small, generally, and manufactured anything, food products or clothes or whatever was very much in this local, intimate context. Like, we have our cheese in this village, and they have that crappy cheese in their village. Then we sort of have the what they call the second industrial revolution, where everyone's mass, mass production. And suddenly, in a very short period of time, like 1880 to 1920, we completely shift to this huge scale where most of the goods we consume or wear or buy are produced far away in some factory, mass-produced, but with very little intimacy, there's very little like, you know, I always think of ivory soap, perfectly terrible for everybody, but easy to mass produce. And, you know, ivory soap's a terrible soap. Dermatologists will tell you, do not use ivory soap. It is a terrible soap. <laughs> but it was the biggest soap in the world for a long time because they figured out how to make it really cheap and mass produce it and everything. And now in the 21st century, and I generally think of this as a very modern thing because of the internet, because we're able to talk by Zoom and do podcasts. And you're able to like create intimate products, like things that a small group of people will love and that you love making, but find your little village spread all over the world. And to me, that's economically really important. That's a big deal. It changes everything. But there's one industry in my mind that really has had that for centuries, and that's wine in general and Burgundy in particular, which for like weird medieval religious reasons, 
you know, they weren't like trying to come up with some economic theory, but they just were able to precisely identify these like really intimate, subtle differences and build this international. Like, it's amazing how early there were like British importers of wines from France and the amount like so to me, the the sommelier role and the knowledgeable importer role is a model of how the whole world should be. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if we had the equivalent of a sommelier for everything we love, like a sommelier for skincare, a sommelier for shirts, a sommelier for like, so if you think of like, I go to my slope cellars, which is like two blocks from my house. It's not a big, and there's just, I just know there's a guy there and a woman there and other people there who are able to match me. I mean, it's sort of insane. They're able to match me with some guy who has like an acre and a half (laughs) of ground, you know, thousands of miles away, who has this like weird obsession with trying to do a particular thing. That's a huge, crazy thing that's happening. That shouldn't be possible. And I'm only, I think cheese, it didn't happen because cheese didn't transport as well. Maybe soap a little bit. There were some French soaps that were, you know, but mostly when you think of products that were sold long distance, it's basic goods, it's spices, it's gold. It wasn't like a lovingly prepared product like wine. And now it really isn't until the 1800s that they figure out the science to keep wine preserved long enough. Like it, it, but still there was, so I think of the wine industry as like so important. And through that, I got fascinated by wine importers, by Kermit Lynch, and everyone talks about Kermit Lynch. So then I found out about Neil Rosenthal and I got really into him because he's really up to something big. Like he has a philosophy of life. He has a philosophy of winemaking. And I just learned, like, if it has Neil Rosenthal on the back, I just know that is a perfect example of what people are trying to do in that place in this time. And then I can play with others and see how they compare. Anyway, sorry to go on. No, don't apologize. I never talk about wine, but I think about it all the time. You guys talk about it all the time. So this is... (laughs) But, you know, it is interesting that you you bring up the role of the sommelier and and this notion of the importer it is such an important role and i think the importer in many ways sort of predates uh the role of the sommelier in being the trust agent for the wine world and it is the thing that i recommend consumers look to probably first and foremost you know if you find a wine that you really like turn it around find out who imports it because as you said nine times out of 10 your palate's going to align and it's not going to work every time but at least there was going at least you'll start to figure out what the variables are if you just limit yourself to particular importers. Um, and I, I think that's, it's interesting. I, as far as the rest of the world's concerned, you know, I, I think as we enter, as the world continues to get smaller and you have influencers in little microcosms and, and little spaces, um, we, we will see more of the sommeliers of the soap world and the clothes world and the food world. And I think we're already seeing that to some extent on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. It's just maybe not in the way we would have imagined. Yeah, no, I think that is true. And fromagiers for sure. Um, And then like YouTube videos, like I'm into fountain pens. It's a brand new thing, but there's like people on YouTube who have like an obsessive following because they'll tell you about the inks that are the coolest inks or whatever. Um, And what I like to say, because sometimes I, I feel like, like people think, oh, that's for fancy rich people. But in my mind, like most of the things I consume are mass produced and cheap just because I don't particularly care about clothes or soap or shampoo personally, (laughs) but it allows you to then focus on the things you do care a lot about. So I get to think like, yes, I could buy a 50 cent pen, but I like thinking about the pens more. I like thinking about the wine more. 
but I'm more indifferent on cars. I'm just willing to get whatever car, you know, I don't need to obsess about it. But someone else who does is now able to do that in a way. Um, the, the problem, though, where I am now is like now I'm ready to shift to a new I'm eager. I'm in fact, I would love advice like like I feel like I, I have so much more to learn about Burgundy and northern Italy. But I and but. I'm realizing so I think Neil Rosenthal is awesome. I also think by his own description, he's he wants the classic old school, like what what is the most typical. And so I'm now interested in like, well, what's happening now and what's interesting now and and learning that. And I just realized like, oh, okay, so I now need new guides. And that's kind of scary when you have trusted guides, but you want new guides, because how do I know my next guides are going to be as good as my current guides? Well, you don't. I mean, I I think that's a risk that you're going to have to take. But you can also find like-minded people that I think the way that you do that, the path that you take is, and maybe I'm a little bit biased since I am a millennial and I am on Instagram and I am what one would maybe consider an influencer in the wine space. But I do think that finding sommeliers and wine influencers that uh, are on Instagram or on social media platforms, finding people who align with you already. So you you search out if there's a particular bottle that you love and you're like, I'd love to find more wines like this or in the same vein. There's very easy ways to do this via Instagram and to find sommeliers who are now, you know, not just existing across the country, like they're literally in your pocket on your iPhone. Um, and I, so I think that's a really, I think it's, we're in a, we're in an interesting place where we don't have to just rely on the importer. We don't just have to rely on the critic. We don't just have to rely on the sommelier in the restaurant. We have hundreds, if not thousands of people who are knowledgeable in the wine space. And one of them is bound to sort of be aligned with you and, and help you and guide you in a way that maybe feels direct, but also indirect at the same time. And that you can just go to their feed and be like, all right, well, they enjoyed, um, Antill Farms yesterday, and today they're drinking Literai, and I already really love uh, Radio Coteau, so like maybe I should try these other ones as right. well. And I feel like I know I'm going to like Literai, but I haven't tried it yet, because I'm just for that exact... You will like yeah. Literai. Um, yes, that's why I use an <laughs> yeah. example. Um, no, no, that makes sense. I mean, something that I did that freed me, but I also feel like weirdly... Imba- like So I started the process of like, okay, I want to know everything, and like almost like I can't even start knowing what I like. <laughs> until I know everything. And then right. that just was too overwhelming. And so I was trying to read these giant, you know, Jancis Robinson atlases. And and then I was like, oh, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to start really like I'm going to look at a village in Burgundy and then I'm going to look at the next village. And then I'll ask for like, what's just a totally different thing, but still in the same region? And then what's something in another country in Italy that's like talking to this like they're aware of burgundy but they're doing something different like and that has been really enjoyable is but it's been slow like i've been doing it like i don't know seven years and i've basically just expanded from burgundy to northern italy so what it's been fun i mean it's nice it never stops though i can tell you amanda you'll probably attest it's not like you ever get to a point where you're like i got this like it continues to change the more you know the more you realize you don't know Which is what I love. It's fascinating, you know? It's Yeah. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really, you start thinking that you know everything and then you quickly realize you'll never know it all. Um, But it's, you know, it's interesting because I've had this question in the back of my mind and I think you set it up beautifully. And maybe this will help to answer your own question because I 
in the wine world, we are struggling with this notion of education and how to communicate wine to a market that maybe isn't interested or finds it too overwhelming. And we haven't done a great job of it traditionally. Things are getting better. But uh, I am a huge fan of what you do with Passion Economy and with Planet Money. And as someone whose experience is mostly limited to that of intermittent conversations with my hedge fund boyfriend, I'm not interested in finance. And yet I find your content incredibly fascinating and interesting and educational. So my question to you is, what is your secret sauce to make me very excited about something that I shouldn't be? Well, I appreciate that question. And I'll just, uh, that's very flattering. The main thing like is just keep trying, like just having the challenge and recognizing that it's a good and exciting challenge. But I think we are hardwired as human beings to like stories about people. And to me, like I have experienced something as a person talking to winemakers that I have not experienced as a consumer of wine media. Like for me, I think a lot of wine, like documentaries and stuff, there is, there's a reverence or a like, you know, like a tone when created Planet Money and, and something we used to say is we didn't want the tone to be, I am an expert and let me tell you what is right. <laughs> and and we felt like that was the voice of business journalism generally. It's like the stocks fell today because of late stage trading, because of fears of a blah, 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 blah. And it's like the voice is this authoritative voice who knows things that you don't know. And my <laughs> feeling was after the financial crisis, it was literally absurd. It was like a Monty Python speech. <gasps> like, you fucking idiots. <laughs> like, we're saying all that stuff every single day, like all day long, every single day, people were like, today, the bond market, blah, blah, blah. And it was like there, you were saying it in a house on fire and you were just calmly being like, the house is perfectly fine today because interest rates, blah, blah, blah. So it was like, you can't have that voice. And so we like to say that the voice we wanted was, holy crap, I just learned this thing. I can't believe it's so weird. Let me tell you about it. Mm. And then ground it in an actual real story. So to me, a real story is not, an emotionally grabbing story is not, Jean-Francois blah, 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 is doing what his great-grandparent taught him how to do. The blah, blah, blah. And on the south slope, because the water, da, 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 da. Um, like, just the energy of that. Like, actually, now I'd want, I'd enjoy that probably if I had drunk the water. Like, you'd enjoy that. <laughs> but but it it requires a lot of, like, you have to know a lot. That was another key lesson with Planet Money is like, Business, as your boyfriend will tell you, is filled with like wars and fights and different opinions and crazy people doing stupid things and crazy people doing smart things and smart people doing stupid things. But it's just hidden by this boring language of stocks and bonds, and it just feels very bloodless. So for me, I think literally every time I've talked to an actual winemaker or a fruit grower or a sommelier or they're like nutty, exciting people who are like passionate and freaking out. Like you guys had options. There's a lot of things you could have done. And you're like, there's an emotional content and like the hunger, the passion, the need that was expressed in like stories about soil and looking at mountains outside of Napa and understanding rainfall, but, but doing it all with this like human hunger. Like, I think that is, you know, Ira Glass was a big mentor of mine who I've worked with a lot, you know, he, he talks about just a story is just this person did this, then this person did that, then this person did that. And, and you're just building up this narrative of like need. And so that to me is what I want to consume more. Now it's tricky to do because wine, you know, as you know, it can like, 
the line between like fascinating, compelling human story and pretentious bullshit is like very <laughs> narrow, very thin, like you thin to non-existent. <laughs> and it just it does sound absurd. Like Adam McKay is a buddy of mine who's the Oscar winning movie filmmaker. And he's making this TV show for HBO about basketball. And he was talking about like it's filled with like emotion and passion and life and death. But he's like, at the end of the day, it's like me bounce ball, me throw ball in net. You know, it's like silly. <laughs> so I also think having that self, the realization that on the one hand, it's absolutely worth devoting a life to this industry and this product. And it's also absurd that you guys are devoting this much attention to fermented grape juice. Like both things are true. 100%. And, and, and living in like... Especially Vanessa. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. I say that in the most loving way because, yeah. I mean, becoming a master of wine is just, wow. Yeah. I think wine traditionally has lacked the human element and it has been too much about the terroir and the grapes and, the, you know, what was the vintage like in 1967? Like, who the fuck cares? Uh, who was making the wine? Was was it Telechev? And was he out of his mind? And like, was he sleepless because he had no help and his wife was yelling at him and his children were going nuts. Like those are the stories that I think people want. And as much as we want to communicate all of this great information and we should be communicating this great information about what makes this plot of land in this so Grand Cru by Gruveau, what makes it so special is important, but also what makes it important from a, from a human aspect. And I think not to make this about wine access, but I think one of the things that as we circle back to what makes a wine worth more money? It's the story. It's the human element. It's the, it's the story that we put behind it. And as, as people on our side of the industry, it's not only necessary, but it is imperative as someone who is trying to sell wine to communicate those stories, not only effectively, but in a way that makes you excited to drink the wine and makes you value the commodity that's sitting in front of Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And I do, I will say, and again, I'm you guys sponsor my podcast, but that is this is something I say behind your back. <laughs> like, I, I think Wine Access, more than other sites I've seen, like you have a a layered approach. Like, I feel like someone who knows nothing could just just say, OK, great, send me six bottles. I'm sure they'll be great. Or and then I found I was able to learn stuff. Not that I'm the big expert. I'm definitely not. And then I feel like it could grow with me. And that is a trick. That is a hard thing to pull off because I find like as a general overstatement, like I feel like wine marketing is either you're an idiot, here's a way to get drunk with your friends, or bonjour, I am very knowledgeable and you know nothing, but this is the most important wine. And you guys, it's like accessible at multiple levels, which is, to me, that's what the industry needs. And and that that feels like a very hard thing to pull off. Thank, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's like, you know, when you were talking about the tone of voice that you wanted to convey the like, holy crap, I just learned this. And let me tell you, you know, I mean, that's something that like we we focus on. I mean, I have hour long calls literally every day uh, about our content. And that's specifically what we what we try to do, which is like, you know, how do we make it educational and engaging and and bring people into the fold who don't know as much. But also if you're this like super knowledgeable collector, you're not going to tune out and be bored. And um, and I mean, I don't I find it fascinating. So I I appreciate that. No, I feel like you guys have really done a, an amazing job. I feel like that was what we were trying to do at Planet Money. Like I, we felt like finance journalism is either idiot or too knowledgeable. And, and, and wine feels like, like, I don't want anyone to talk to me like an idiot, but I don't want 
here's a silly wine with a fun icon on the cover and and we're going to have a bad word in our advertising so you know we're edgy. <laughs> but also, it you know, it took a while to overcome, like that, to learn that like this Eshazo label, like there's some crazy passion. And by the way, I've now switched back to the Eshazo. I did too. <laughs> it is 20 times better. It is 20 times better. Like, I know I just said a wine that costs 20 times as much is not necessarily 20 times better. It is 20 times better. It's a beautiful wine. I really, (laughs) really like, like, I would be totally thrilled if the Crozet Hermitage, if I walked over to a friend's house and they had that. But when I have the option, like, (laughs) 20 times out of 20, I'm going to the Eshazo. So (laughs) I, I think... I think if we didn't have them, to your point, like if we didn't have them side by side and you had just opened, you know, the crows on its own, like, I think we would. I'd be thrilled. Right. But, but yeah. by comparison. No, this is yeah. like, it's, yeah, it's like a sophisticated, subtle, but also ex- like accessibly sophisticated. So, yeah, but that's tricky to tell human stories with passion that like, it's just tricky. The other thing, by the way, and this is what we were talking about wines in general and this was a learn, a big learning for me. Like some Burgundy winemaker who's working an acre is just doing a totally different thing than some big Bordeaux winery. And they're both doing something totally different from someone who's trying to be a pioneer in the Santa Cruz mountains. And they're doing a totally different thing from someone in Argentina or Chile. Like, and so the very idea that it's wine, like I'm in the podcast industry, you're in the podcast industry. I hate that we call them all podcasts because some podcasts are like carefully curated documentaries. Some are like lively conversations. Some are like political rants. Like it feels like we should have more segmentation and wine is obviously segmented. But the fact that it's like, I want to learn wine. I think that's what I originally was doing, but you can't learn wine. Like, what does that even mean? You could learn Mm -hmm. about some wines and then learn about other wines, but. It's the hardest thing to learn about. There is no real path or trajectory. And I think the hardest thing, uh, for me and for Vanessa to explain to people that are trying to get into it is, unfortunately, there is just no particular one way to get there. Like it is just an exploration and there's no set road and it doesn't matter how much you know, there will always be something further down it. There is that religious conversion that happens the first time you taste a wine and you're like, that person was trying to do something and I just experienced that thing. That is like... Unless you're Vanessa and you take a yeah. class. <laughs> but same concept, right? Like, you know, Amanda and I have talked about this. Like, I, you know, what you're describing is what, what we call an epiphany bottle, right? Where like you have a bottle of wine and you're like, oh my God, what is this? Like, how do I know more? Um, and it, and it take you know, it becomes a passion. And, and I took a class. I took a class on wine just because I'm that big of a dork. And that was my epiphany. But, but it's the same thing. It was like, oh my God, people do this. This is what they do. Like this bottle, like everything that went into this was touched how many times and how many decisions had to be made, you know? So that was my epiphany was like this thing that is so simple. You can just pour and drink with a friend and enjoy like, you know, but how many different things built up to make your overall enjoyment of it. And that's what I find fascinating. Exactly. And and it means like there's a price of admission, like there's this massive barrier to entry, as economists would call it. There's this mm-hmm. huge hurdle you have to overcome. Like if the three of us decided, okay, we're going to create a wine. We've got like this take on wine that's like fresh and exciting for us to seriously make a play. I mean, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars to, in, in marketing and consultants and courting. And we'd probably 
focus on New York and California just because they're big markets and we just forget the rest of the country and we wouldn't even think about international. And that is bad for me as a consumer. Like, like what I want as a consumer is like the most winemakers doing the most interesting stuff and mm-hmm. able to like get to me in the most frictionless way possible. And then I want people like you guys to be judging the shit out of them and really having super high standards. And so by the time I'm aware of a wine, mm-hmm. it's good. And so it, so it's it's kind of a paradox because on the one hand, it is obviously by far the best time in human history to be a wine consumer without question, even in Wisconsin, but definitely in New York. <laughs> I am never more than like three blocks from a knowledgeable wine retailer and a restaurant with a good sommelier who can like get me quickly and efficiently to an amazing wine experience at maybe a high price point, but not a crazy price point. So on that level, like, holy crap, like, if you like wine, this is the best time in the world by far. So um, I think wine is the best market in my life right now. No, I, I think it's a fair point. And you point out the silver lining in all of this, which is we do have access to more wines than we ever have before. And when I was coming up in New York, not knowing about the California wines or at least having the the stigma attached to all California wines having a sort of homogenized look was a result of a lack of other California wines even making it into the New York market. So you know that if they're not making it to the New York market, definitely not making it to. Sorry, Wisconsin. I hope whoever's listening from Wisconsin. Yeah, we keep beating up on Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. I've spent a lot of <laughs> You time. know, they're not they're not making it there. And that was that did really shape how I thought about wine because the wines just weren't available. At the same time though, think about wine access. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with it, but um <laughs> I can go on your site and like you've obsessively like scoured the globe for me. And what else in my life is like that? I can't like I can go on Amazon and there's a five star rating, but I don't know what they're rating. I don't know. That's helpful if I'm buying like a computer cable. If it has two thousand five star ratings, it's probably not going to be terrible. But it's not going to like zero in on the most unique, special thing for me. It's it's not going to have any nuance, any subtlety. And so, what other market has that? That's why like I can I can make the argument for this is a terrible, terrible way to run an industry. But what else is like that? I can't think of anything else where I can just type in a website and there's like six crazy professionals who are obsessed with me getting exactly the thing I want. You know, there's not like an Amazon cable podcast where they hire like a cable expert to talk (laughs) about cables. Like, um, (laughs) no, (laughs) maybe there is. And so that's why like wine as a service, like wine has had that ethos, like Farmers in Burgundy in 1400 needed people in London to think of Burgundy wine as a valuable thing. And that paid off to farmers in 1600 and farmers in 1800 and is paying off today. And and that ethos, which wine embodies like that, that is, I, I think, to me, economically what you're talking about. But it actually requires you actually do the thing. You create the real value that I can year after year count on you both providing me short-term pleasure, but also helping me learn about this over time. That's very exciting. It is very exciting. I wanted to dive into this. We're kind of running out of time, but uh, as a as a history of religions major, I wonder if you majored in that to learn about the world in the way that Vanessa and I decided to get into wine to learn about the world and the, the deep rabbit hole that provides. 
I think it's a very similar thing. I'm not religious. I've never been religious, but I was in college and I was struggling because I found philosophy fascinating. I found history fascinating. I found art fascinating. I found science fascinating. And religion kind of embodies all of it and is a way to look at all those elements. And I think, I mean, that, that to me in my conversion to wine is like, it's so like I can drink something now and can be reading about ancient Rome or medieval France, or today in Italy. And like, now, by the way, ancient Roman wines apparently were, like, we would find them so disgusting. <laughs> like, they poured a lot of spice. I've, I've heard, and, yeah. But still, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's like gold wine. <laughs> so, yes, I think, like, that's, that's part of, like, saying wine is not a thing. What does it mean to learn wine? It's like exactly. learning the human experience. Like, it's, it's, it's everything. Yeah. yeah. Wine is just a proxy for learning about the world, I think. It's a gateway. It's a window. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could have a rich life only learning about the science of wine or only learning about 100%. the history of wine or only learning about the, the techniques of wine or only learning about this region of France and what it tells you about. And you'd have a lot, a lot to drink. Exactly. <laughs> now, the most controversial thing I would say, and I don't know how to intellectually justify this, but I've read enough of the science to be very skeptical of the idea of terroir. And I need terroir to be true for my personal enjoyment. So I've just like that. That would be a case where I just somehow that adds to the pleasure of wine, that there's like a scientific level and then there's just an experiential, almost religious level. And I just don't I don't justify it. I, I just like that that is unresolved. And I think that's a good place to live in. I mean, I, I, I think many winemakers and, and sommeliers and wine professionals would agree that wine is where, where art and science meet or art and religion and science meet or there, this notion of terroir is a debatable one. And I think that is part of what makes wine so fascinating and, and such a unique topic to speak on because there, there is a lot of science that goes into it. And there is a lot of science that happens uh, as it pertains to soil types and, and topography and geography and um, weather patterns. But there is something, and Vanessa and I have, have spoken about this many times, there is just something uh, unquantifiable and magical yeah. about wine and terroir. And, and it doesn't need to be defined. It can just exist. And if we know that it exists and it surprises us sometimes or we expect it to be there, um, that is what lends itself to great conversation and thinking and uh, philosophizing. And, and I think why so many people get wrapped up in the conversation about wine, because no one knows. And if you think you know, leave the conversation because it, it just, it, no one can possibly know there's too many variables. Right. Although the one thing I do know is <laughs> that when a winemaker is talking about terroir, I am much more likely to love that wine. Fair enough. And if the winemaker doesn't believe in terroir, I'm less likely to like that wine. And I feel like that's enough for me. Absolutely. But I think that's a good place to wrap up. We've got, Vanessa, I saw you emptied what I suppose was probably your burgundy glass. It's almost gone. Yeah. Down the hatch. Um, I've got a little bit left. And this, you know, this Crozier Mitage. It's really good. I'm now, I've finished the- It's really good. But, you know, I think we talked a little bit about maybe um, whether or not this should be decanted prior to the recording of this podcast. I still maintain that this is not a wine that wants to be pushed. And I think in about 30 to 45 minutes, it might come out of its shell, but it is a little young. It's a 16. And I think just, you know, Crozier Mutage tends to be a little bit closeted in its youth and that's fine. Um, I have to say this 17 Echazo really, yep. really Same. blew me away. I did not expect when I committed an, uh, infanticide with this wine that it would be so delicious, so young, but 
it is one of the best wines I've ever had. And it's at a price point that I would normally ignore. And I'm now like, I think I got to get a few bottles. Like, it is <laughs> so good. And my wife's in the other room. I can't wait to pour her a glass. Oh, and, awesome. And yeah. Oh, good. Well, we won't keep her waiting any longer. But I am thrilled that The Economist uh, has come around to spending a little more than you normally would. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that we could provide that for you. So um, <laughs> we did it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, you can uh, tell everyone where, where they can find you. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the Passion Economy podcast available on all like Apple, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, everywhere you get podcasts. And, and then I wrote a book, The Passion Economy, which ha- does have, I, I, I write a big thing about Saris Estates, which is a fruit grower that's trying to become a winemaker in uh, Sonoma. But most of the book is not about wine, but there's a bit of wine in there. So I recommend it because I wrote it. So of course. (laughs) Great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Grab some Echezo and the Passion Economy and uh, saddle up. I highly recommend the Echezo. If you're choosing between my book and the (laughs) Echezo, get the (laughs) Echezo. Why choose? Why choose? Yeah. Why choose? Yeah. This was a real joy. Thank you, guys. Woo. I am a little exhausted. That was quite the conversation. He kind of put us through our paces in the best way possible, though. I felt like I had to kind of brush off all my my business learnings about the wine the wine business. You know, so often we're just kind of chit-chatting like fun experiences at dinner and all that. But like he asked some really insightful questions. I agree. I thought it was a really fun and welcome divergence from some of the other podcasts that we've done, which we've obviously loved and had a great time doing. But I really looked forward to speaking with Adam. I'm a huge fan of him and what he does, especially with all the podcasts that he did uh, for NPR with Planet Money and then the Passion Economy. So an, an insightful conversation because I think we learned a lot and gained a lot. And a lot of the things that he was doing for those both of those podcasts and projects that he's worked on, I think to some degree, we could potentially apply to what we do in the wine world. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of similarities and, and parallels. And I have to tell you, I'm going to buy his book. <laughs> but will you read it? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't seem like, uh, yeah, leisurely uh, Sunday afternoon reading. I feel like it's, it's more like study. But but the way he described it, though, it's all kind of really wrapped in storytelling. So maybe maybe it is. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I, I'm playing, of course. I think you will absolutely read, read it and enjoy it because I think everything he does is very digestible and, and makes it easy for a person like me with no finance background to in, not only digest it, but enjoy it while doing so. And, you know, we can always drink wine in the process. Well, and not to our, mention our the wines today. I mean, th- these yes. are some of my favorites that we've that we've opened on any podcast so far. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, uh, I I would be lying if I didn't tell you I'm eager to wrap this up and go get drinking because though I, I have a preference for the ushes, though, I have to say that Jabolet kind of kicked out. Yeah, it definitely held its own against some tough competition. Yes. Hard to hard to choose a favorite for me today, honestly. So, yeah. I'm going to say it's a tie, each each beautiful in its own right, and each going to be consumed imminently. <laughs> well, I think that's a good tie, especially when you've got two wines with such different price points. So, of course, speaking of which, if someone wanted to enjoy two wines at different price points, but both had a wonderful story and drank deliciously, perhaps they could find them where? Great question at WineAccess.com. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram at WineAccess or Facebook at The Wine Access Experience. And if someone should want to follow this podcast, Amanda, how might they do so? 
Oh, I just love when you set me up for these questions. They can follow us at Wine Access Unfiltered on Instagram and at Wine Access Pod on Twitter. And of course, if you want to see our faces and you would like to see our guest faces, that is the place where you can do that. We always put little clips up of these podcasts so you can get a glimpse of who we're talking to and, and what wines we're drinking. It's a lot and whether of whether we brushed our hair that day. <laughs> That is always a gamble. Um, <laughs> I don't think that we went into some of these realizing that eventually this would be on a different platform beyond just uh, the audio medium. Nope. Sure so, did it. Okay. <laughs> well, I won't keep us from our delicious wines any longer. So I will say cheers. Thank you for being with me. And until next time. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>